I did find it really admirable and kind of mind-blowing that there was a group of people who were like, you know what, when you do something, you do it in the name of Anonymous and you don't seek personal fame and recognition. And this was really a living, breathing ethic that was enforced in very tangible ways. Hello and welcome to the Hacker Next Door podcast, where we explore the origin stories, exploits, and everyday lives of real-world hackers. I'm your host, Jeremy N. Smith, and this series is my chance to challenge stereotypes and examine the human side of this extraordinary activity and profession, who hackers really are, and how hacking really works. My guest today is Gabriella Coleman, a hacker author, anthropologist, and public intellectual, and one of the world's foremost scholars on hacker culture. Coleman holds the Wolf Chair in Scientific and Technological Literacy at McGill University in Montreal, and her two books, Coding Freedom and Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy are brilliant, myth-busting classics about hacker aesthetics, activism, and anonymity. I'm entertained, challenged, and inspired every time I read something she writes, and I was thrilled to get to pick her mind in person. I know you'll enjoy the conversation, too. Thank you so much for joining me, Gabriella. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. You spent six years immersing yourself in the global hacktivist group Anonymous. Big picture... How does Anonymous start? What does it evolve into and where does it stand now? <laughs> I should just say, you can read my book. No, um, it's a hard question to answer because Anonymous morphed into a kind of hacktivist, activist collective in the late 2010 period. But its roots actually came from an anonymous image board called 4chan.org where the name Anonymous first came into being as an identity that emerged from the fact that everyone on that board posts with the name Anonymous. <laughs> All users are anonymous. Exactly. I am Spartacus, but I am anonymous. That's exactly it. And what's so interesting, too, is that there was like a period of time where people could use a name, but that was really discouraged. And it became a taboo. And from the very username anonymous that again everyone hundreds and thousands of people were using a kind of meta identity of anonymous formed and it became a character with symbols like most famously a man wearing a suit without a head right it was really about not having a personal brand or identity but having all actions and ideas and discussions attributed to this thing called anonymous. And there was a period of time where the name was used for pranking and trolling campaigns, right? where different individuals or organizations were targeted, often harassed quite maliciously. And again, you could use the cover of anonymity to do that. And then very surprisingly, during a trolling campaign against the Church of Scientology, and they were targeted after the Church of Scientology tried to get publishers to take down a video of Tom Cruise, who's you know the most famous Scientologist, a, a video that had been leaked by ex-members of the church. After the church threatened lawsuits, Anonymous pranked and trolled the church. And then through a weird set of circumstances that had in part to do with a debate, a video, ex-members of the church asking Anonymous to kind of get involved seriously, there was like an actual earnest campaign 
to protest the Church of Scientology. And so at that period, you still had trolls and pranksters using the name, and then you had earnest advocates using the name. And you could do that because anonymous is what's referred to as a multiple use name. It's for anyone to take. No one has ownership over it. So you can do silly pranks, you can do somewhat serious pranks, and you can do powerful political acts, or I should say, you know, important political acts against the powerful. Exactly. But what happened was by 2011, the trolling or the pure trolling stopped and almost every action under the guise anonymous. And it was worldwide. People took the name in Malaysia, the Philippines, Dominican Republic, Australia, Hong Kong, Mexico, Chile. I mean, it became totally global. Every action became an activist, hacktivist uh, operation. How did people find it? How did they get involved? At the time that they were quite big, again, 2010, really 11, uh, the most common way to get involved was to log onto Internet Relay Chat, IRC. Basically, it's a primitive chat program that is run on a server where you basically have different rooms that are divided by topic. So you'd find them largely there as well as on Twitter. This scene gets blown up eventually, in part, I should say, by law enforcement and other powers. Can you tell you what happened in short? Sure. So first of all, um, you know, a lot of the actions being carried out under the name were not illegal. They were just mostly glorified digital cheerleaders, I guess. You know, like, look what's happening in Tunisia. There's protests on the ground. Get involved. Here's some videos. Rah, rah, rah. Right? Right. Sort of a... Uh pre-Twitter mob mob or, or, or outside of Twitter kind of mob. And I guess I, I don't mean mob in a bad way. I just mean quickly massing movement. Exactly. And, and they did rely on Twitter quite a bit to get people excited about things. But there was a small fraction of participants who were hackers who broke into systems. And because of the law breaking, especially because they started to target American security companies and the U.S. government, the FBI took an interest, uh-huh. as they want to do. And at a certain point, they were able to catch one of the participants, Hector Monsegur, and they basically flipped him. They said, you know, if you don't come work for us or on behalf of us, we are going to really mess with your family. There's more details, but you could imagine what they did. And so he felt like he had no choice. And so he continued to participate, but as an informant, and he would channel information to the FBI. That combined with the fact that people weren't necessarily following the best security protocols either, the participants, meant that eventually a number of people were arrested in the UK and the United States. And a lot of the hacker activity actually dampened after those arrests. You know, you tell the story so well and from an amazing inside perspective in hacker, hoaxer, whistleblower, spy. So I definitely encourage people to read it. I want to kind of go conceptually though, but then how this works on the ground and for all of us, anonymity gets a bad rap. Mm-hmm. The classic criticism is like, what are you hiding? <laughs> so why is anonymity important if you're not a criminal, a bully, or a harasser? Why is anonymity important if you're trying to do good, not bad? Yeah, anonymity is so important for so many reasons. And it's true. I mean, it's I think it's always really important to state from the outset that it can be used for good and bad. 
there's no reason to whitewash the bad elements. But if we lived in a world where no one could be anonymous, it would basically give the government and corporations the right to track everyone at all moments. And that's just the definition of a totalitarian society, right? There is a reason we don't have security cameras in our house. It would make for safer conditions. There'd be less domestic abuse, for example, which is a huge problem. But we decide that we have to deal with domestic abuse another way, because if we got rid of the right to be private in your domestic sphere, again, that would be a horrid society to live in. And I think, you know, so much of our interactions happen online, that that is a kind of extension of our private space. And again, if there was no anonymity, you would be chipping away at these zones where you need that space for privacy, knowing that people are not surveilling you. But then the other side too, is that activists and advocates have often relied on speaking anonymously in order to make critiques or whistleblow. And the problem is, unless you afford society the right to be truly anonymous, and in the technological present, that means the right to use encryption, then people won't have that ability to speak anonymously. And so then we take away one avenue that activists and whistleblowers use to express dissent and get their ideas out there. Right. It's hard even to organize, right? If you can't do it anonymously to begin with, if you're putting forth a controversial or minority opinion, even if it will hopefully carry the day eventually. That's right. And so a good example from the past concerns the history of psychiatry, Okay. Uh, where there was a period of time where psychiatry considered homosexuality a medical condition of sexual deviance, and it was part of the psychiatric manual. If you were gay, you had a psychiatric problem. Exactly. And this was in the textbook, in their, in their, in the DSM, in the, the standard the manual for diagnosis of people with problems. So if someone came into a doctor and they were going by the book and they were gay, they had a psychiatric problem. Exactly. And when something becomes medicalized like that, it, it, it exists under the regime of truth and becomes very hard to contest. How do you contest that? And obviously people who are gay and have other kind of sexual orientations are like, this is not a disease and had to organize and fight. And one of the most powerful moments in that fight happened in 1973 when a psychiatrist at the annual meeting, the annual American Psychiatric Association decided to confess that he was gay and he was a psychiatrist. And he did so anonymously. He had a mask, a rubber mask. He had a voice distorter. And he read a very powerful letter that explained why he did not think this was a disease and why it did not belong in the DSM. And Although a debate already existed, this really helped turbocharge it. And I believe within a year it was dropped. And what's interesting is that he was at the time an assistant professor and he was afraid of losing his job if he spoke up with his name. And he was indeed anonymous, I believe, for something like 23 years. Wow. I know. This is in-person anonymity. In-person anonymity. What are more recent examples of online anonymity being valuable and good? 
I'll maybe give two examples. Great. One concerns whistleblowing, where we have seen a kind of flourishing of whistleblowing that has happened, kind of facilitated and enabled by digital conditions. And by whistleblowing, you mean sort of saying there is a problem at this big business or this government agency, and I'm revealing it to you without telling you who I am, but here's the proof. Exactly. And so two of the most famous cases are not anonymous. Edward Snowden, who gave a lot of information about NSA and their kind of overstepping of surveillance of the American people. And he chose not to be anonymous from the start. Chelsea Manning initially was anonymous and then was outed. But let's take another example, the Panama Papers, okay, which was a leak related to a law firm, Fonseca, it might have another additional name, in Panama, which was basically facilitating a lot of tax evasion for their clients who came from around the world. And these are some of the wealthiest individuals and indeed institutions in the world. Absolutely. And Including a lot of government leaders ex- worldwide. Exactly. I- the Icelandic prime minister was involved and had to step down. This was anonymous. We still don't know who the person uh, behind the Panama Papers is. And you know what? I think that's a great thing. Because look at Edward Snowden, who's in exile. Chelsea Manning, she did seven years in jail, right? This is so important to protect people. Because even whistleblowers who are lauded by society as heroes usually have their reputations ruined and often get into a lot of legal trouble. So obviously people also use online anonymity to commit crimes or hurt and harass others. How do we promote good uses of anonymity without also being overwhelmed by the bad? The way I approach this issue or problem is to remind people that we've endowed law enforcement with tremendous resources to go after the bad guys. So they have big budgets, they have personnel, they have technologies in order to go after the criminals of of various sorts. And, And many times when people, when criminals are using online domains and anonymity to commit crimes, there's also an offline component. And so law enforcement can both do things online to try to catch people, but there's also an ability to track people offline. And again, they're endowed with the resources to do this. Whereas the activists and the whistleblowers who are using the online, you know, tools and services are not equally endowed with those resources, right? They're really resource poor in some fundamental way. And so anonymity just enables them to exist in a way that doesn't take away the resources from law enforcement to go after the bad guys. Even if we're pro-anonymity... Is it even possible to go online without being tracked by Google, Facebook, telecom companies, ad sites, the government, and so on? What tools can people use to stay anonymous or enhance their privacy, if that's even possible? If you truly, truly, truly need to be like super anonymous because you are releasing some very sensitive information to, let's just say, journalists... Do your homework. Sure. Do your homework. <laughs> like really, <laughs> anonymously. Really, exactly, anonymously. <laughs> Do your homework over a period of time because you can be, but it is tough. It is okay. tough. It's really easy to mess up, but it is possible. 
So how can we be more anonymous, I should say, if we're sort of more ordinary people? There are tools at your disposal. And what's also good about using them is that the more people that use them, the less others who really need them and are using them stand out. So these tools kind of are emboldened by a network effect. And so what is available today and was not available just 10, 15 years ago are things like Tor, which among other things allows you to browse the web anonymously with your browser. It also can be good for censorship evasion of, of websites in certain places. There is Signal, which is an end-to-end encrypted chat system and phone system that is very user-friendly. If you want to be a little bit more advanced, you can use Tails, which is an operating system, which you can boot from a USB, which has certain security and anonymity features in the operating system. And then there's also some options for your email, such as Pretty Good Privacy, which is for encrypting email, harder to install and harder to mess up with. It's one of those things that it's probably a good idea to get some training if you're going to use PGP. Conversely, is there any technology or tools you specifically don't use because of concerns about privacy, anonymity, or anything else? Well, historically, I didn't have a cell phone for five years until very, very recently. And I did. I did have a cell phone, and then I let it go. You took a sabbatical, a long sabbatical. (laughs) I took a long sabbatical for five years. And it was in part because of the Snowden revelations, which detailed how phone companies were keeping data about their customers. And there's also been a lot of information about location data that your cell phone gives. And I thought it'd be an interesting experiment to kind of do away with this device that tracked you, that showed people where you were, right? Sure. And it was hard. It was definitely, definitely hard. And it got to a point where it just became very difficult to kind of coordinate certain things, I guess. And finally, I gave in. But that's one thing. And then, of course, there's other things that you can do that are a bit easier. Like you could use Firefox in the privacy mode, which is far more privacy friendly or DuckDuckGo. It's a search engine that's not tracking you in the way that Google does. Those are things you, sh- you should use, and you could let go of things like Google search engine and, and so on and so forth. Back to Anonymous for a second. Can you speak to the aesthetics or ethics, if you will, of anonymity? It is really, really, really hard to do something that is admirable and good. And again, I think like the majority of their operations were admirable, were good, and the majority were also legal. And not ask for any recognition. You know, our society is one that's built so fundamentally on the recognition of every one of our acts, right? Whether that's like in music or writing. And we are also celebrity obsessed as a culture as well. And so I did find it really admirable and kind of mind-blowing that there was a group of people who were like, you know what, when you do something, you do it in the name of Anonymous, and you don't seek personal fame and recognition. And this was really a living, breathing ethic that was enforced in very tangible ways. And that was really mind-opening. I mean, there's always been instances of this, of Anonymous collectives, for example, producing material. But this was like the most populist rendition of that that I've seen. And I do think it's really, really hard thing to do in our society that places so much emphasis on, you know, 
building a brand and getting recognition for your work, which is what I do as an academic and what you do as a writer and what many people do in this society. When I started writing about hackers, so many friends and family were alarmed for me and for themselves as sort of collateral targets. They're like, they're going to destroy you. They're going to blow things up. They're going to hurt you. <laughs> How can you get involved with these dangerous forces? And the people I met in person were really earnest, especially if I was earnest to them. You know, I never tried to sort of pretend I was a hacker. You know, I own black t-shirts and shorts. Those were not what I would wear when I was hanging out with hackers. I would wear like khakis and a buttoned up shirt to... <laughs> You know, specifically, like, I am not trying to infiltrate. I am trying to learn. And I, I think they responded really well to that. At the same time, how do you, I'm sure you got and get some of the same concerns. And maybe, in fact, you have been targeted in some way. So I wonder, what's your experience with that right. kind of response? Well, I have a good story in that regard. I mean, Anonymous, for the most part, with a few exceptions, liked having me around. And I never felt threatened by them. I was a little bit afraid of the people who hated Anonymous because I was closely affiliated with the movement as a, a person who was going to the public and making them more sensible. And every once in a while, some people from Anonymous were like, we will protect you if these people go after you, which was nice, even though I didn't always feel like that would be enough. But there was this one, one instance that was very telling where someone... A uh, hacker not involved in Anonymous that was kind of part of the sort of security scene had been on a chat channel and a lot of the hackers were making fun of me and also wanted to teach me a lesson because I had studied open source hacking, which many of them didn't consider really as hacking because that's just like programming. That's not really breaking and entering into systems. And many thought Anonymous as a movement was kind of lame. And so they were like, they were talking about me and they were like, we're going to show her a lesson and break into her system, show, show her what real hackers do. Oh. I know. And then a kind of renegade friendly person came and warned me. And I was just like, oh my fucking God. I would almost not want the warning. I mean, what can you do? Well, I got offline for a few days and I do know very technically proficient people. I'm not going to pretend that I'm super technically proficient and I had them help me fortify my system. And maybe they never went through with it. I don't know. I think it's pretty lame that they felt like threatened and had to display their macho bravado. You know what I mean? Sure. It's, it's just classic bullying. Exactly. And again, I think that's not the norm in the hacker world. You know, a lot of hackers are really helpful. Many of them do have a lot of power, but many of them are there to help secure systems. But there are, you know, historically and, and currently these moments where certain groups or individuals will go out of line and do something inappropriate. And again, maybe they would never do it and they were just talking shit on a channel. But that really, it did scare me. I literally unplugged from the internet for three to four days. Which was kind well, of nice, too. <laughs> <laughs> another, another sabbatical. Exactly. After all your research, what's the biggest thing you find ordinary people still don't understand about hackers? And on the other side, what's the biggest thing hackers may not understand about themselves? So the first part is I still think that a lot of people don't think hackers are quite human. Hmm. Um, that they, sure. they lack... They don't have a face. Yeah. They don't have a face. Even when they admire them, they think they're a little bit off kilter or crazy. And in fact, that's what bothered me a little bit about Mr. Robot, the TV show, which 
was quite good in, in many respects. And a lot of hackers respected it for being technically accurate. But Elliot was often just on another planet. And there's nothing wrong with being on another planet. Some people have that condition. But I just have met many different hackers and they're just like humans of different kinds and different sorts and have mental health issues in the way that people in society do. Then in terms of, can you, can you phrase the second part of the question again? Sure. What's the biggest thing hackers may not understand about themselves? I guess I ask that because if these are individuals gathering anonymously or online or in pretty isolated pockets without a human image to see, I kind of wonder if if you only see narrow representations of yourself, if that can lead you to narrow your own view of, of what you can be or what you can do or how to act or how to right. be. But I don't mean to put those words or thoughts in your head. Yeah, I'll take maybe a slightly different tack to this sure. question, which is, you know, not all hackers are explicitly politically motivated in the way that anonymous was slash is, or even free software developers who question proprietary software and release software where you could access the blueprint. That's kind of a more narrow politics, but it's political. Even hackers who are not political in those ways have often configured themselves in ways where there's a lot of autonomy in their world. They get together independent of the places where they work. They speak up. They have their own values. They tend to have very strong kind of ethical codes. I sometimes think that they don't fully see how precarious that can be. That because so many of them are so involved in the corporate world, the governmental world, where many of them have made a difference in very important ways, they could lose their autonomy and their freedom. And so I think it's sometimes what I would say is like guard that autonomy, because that could be something that helped define hacking cultures from the late 50s to the present, but may not be around for the next 50 years if you're not careful. Where can people find you online if they're interested? I'm on Twitter. What's your handle? Biella Coleman. They can find my webpage as well. And be on the lookout for Hack Curio, which is the video portal into hackerdom, which I'll be publishing pretty soon. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you again to Gabriella Coleman. Thank you to Furniture for our theme music. And thank you for listening. Please rate, review, and share this podcast with friends. And please join me again when I speak with Caitlin Bowden about fighting revenge porn and organizing a hacktivist army. That's next time on The Hacker Next Door.